Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jonathan Dunham studied biochemistry at Denison University in Ohio, graduated with the class of 2000, and then spent most of his 20s wandering around aimlessly in a professional sense. He didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life. He'd been a substitute teacher at a public school in Portland, Oregon, but that was unrewarding. And then he thought about going to medical school, but decided that that was just a fast track to the American cul-de-sac of materialism. You know, the fastest car, the newest computer, the latest iPhone, Chanel number no. 5, blah, 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 blah. So one day from his home in Portland, Oregon, he just started walking south along the Pacific Crest Trail. And he just kept going and going and going. Four years later, he found himself in Venezuela, still two years from his ultimate goal of Patagonia. Yes, Denison alum Jonathan Dunham wanted to walk from the American Northwest almost to the South Pole. It's 7,000 miles, and it takes six years to get it done, at least the way you're doing it like Jonathan. In Mexico, about a third of the way to his ultimate destination, Jonathan stayed with a family and paid for his bed and board by milking the cows and doing chores around the farm. And it was when it was time for him to press on further south, the farmer bought him a donkey for 300 pesos. The donkey's name is Judas. Jonathan carries no money and has very few possessions, but Jonathan is a philosopher and likes to read Sartre and Hegel and Plantinga, so Judas comes in handy to carry Jonathan's books. Also, of course, to make friends. In many of the towns Jonathan and Judas walk through, the local newspaper or radio station wants to interview them. This 7,000-mile expedition is a mystery to everyone. Why are you walking 7,000 miles, they ask Jonathan. Are you, a, are you a missionary? Are you an athlete? Are you raising money for cancer or something? But Jonathan doesn't know why he's walking 7,000 miles, and if Judas knows, he's not talking about it. When Jonathan and Judas walk down the road, they often stop tra traffic. More than once, a school bus will stop and 40 school children will pile out of the bus to say hello to Judas. He was especially helpful in Venezuela, where they hate America but love donkeys. Once the Venezuelan National Guard interrogated Jonathan for eight hours trying to figure out if he was a spy, and then let him go when Judas said he loved Hugo Chavez. And I guess the point of Jonathan and Judas's story is that if you have a donkey, everybody will think you're harmless. This is true in Venezuela today, and it was true 2,000 years ago when Jesus came riding into the capital city on the back of a donkey, and it was true 3,000 years ago when Jesus' distant, beloved, and celebrated ancestor, King David, did the same thing riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And if you think the donkey is but a bit player in Jesus' mad dash to Calvary, just look at how much attention Mark pays to him. 
Now, Mark's gospel, of course, is the leanest, sparest, snappiest of the four in your New Testaments. There is never a wasted word in Mark's pithy little story. Mark's Palm Sunday story, for instance, is a terse telling of exactly 202 words. And someone pointed out that 150 of those 202 words are about the donkey. 75% of Mark's Palm Sunday story is about the travel arrangements. When a king enters a capital city on the back of a homely donkey with monstrous ears, instead of a white stallion with flashing mane, it's a gesture of peace. It's a passing of the peace pipe. It's a signing of a peace treaty. Frumpy as he is, the donkey isn't really a symbol of humility, as we often think. It's a symbol of fearless power. When a king comes riding victoriously into a capital city via this unfashionable conveyance, it's as if he's saying, I'm so powerful, I don't need a white stallion with a flashing mane. I don't need an entourage of soldiers and swords and spears. I am so much in charge, I'm harmless. I'm so powerful, I don't need to hurt you. So, Jesus borrows the conveyance of kings, so strong they're harmless, astride this homely symbol of peace and power. And we call it then, of course, the triumphal entry. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Which is a funny way of talking about it, knowing what we know, yes? Jesus' victory is like a shooting star incandescent but fugitive, here and then gone. Once on Sunday, he comes riding into the capital city like a king. On Monday, he rampages through the temple with a knot of ropes like a maniac. On Tuesday, he starts slandering the character of the most powerful people in the city with shocking language as if he wants to die. And on Wednesday, he starts talking about the end of the world and sounds insane. On Thursday, someone he thought of as his closest friend sold him into chains for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a used car. And this Judas is far more menacing than Judas the donkey. He's an ass, but that's where the similarity ends. Jesus... Greatest triumph is merely prelude to his crushing defeat. He really is king of the world, but for a throne there is nothing but a cross. For a crown he wears thorns, and for a scepter an iron spike. On the other hand, do you know Emily Dickinson's poem, Triumph, may be of several kinds of printed a copy in your bulletins at the end of the liturgy. Triumph, she says, may be of several kinds. There's triumph in the room when that old imperator death by faith be overcome. There's triumph of the finer mind when truth affronted long advance unmoved to her supreme, her God, her only throng. A triumph one temptation's bribe be slowly handed back. One eye upon the heaven renounced and one upon the rack. Triumph may be of several kinds, she says. 
And what she means, I think, is that what looks at first like defeat might be anything but. There's triumph in the room when that old despot death is defeated by faith. A friend of mine lost his beloved father a couple of weeks ago. They were very close, and the dying took a long time. And my friend sat at his father's deathbed for days on end, hours at a time. It was very hard. And when I asked him how he was doing, he said, my father's death was the most important and beautiful experience of my life. There's triumph in the room when that old imperator death by faith be overcome. Jesus knew he was going to die when he went to Jerusalem, but he went anyway. Triumph may be of several kinds. Did you see the tears of agony on the face of T.J. McConnell last night after the loss to Wisconsin? T.J. McConnell, senior point guard for the University of Arizona. He's a senior. This was his last chance. For the second year in a row, Wisconsin defeated Arizona at the Elite, at the elite Eight stage in the NCAA tournament. TJ and Arizona coach Sean Miller are very close. They're both former point guards from Pittsburgh high schools. Coach Miller recruited TJ away from a smaller school after his sophomore year. Arizona played Duquesne, and Coach Miller was so impressed with Duquesne's point guard that he enticed him to come to Arizona. And after the game, T.J. McConnell points to Coach Miller and said, he's like my father. I am so sorry I couldn't get him to the Final Four. It was a crushing defeat, but he looked like a winner to me. What a class act. Until Abraham Lincoln, every American president traveled with a large entourage. Between George Washington and the American people, for example, there was a scrim of several bodyguards and attendants and servants and coachmen protecting his blind side like Tom Brady's offensive line. But Abraham Lincoln called himself the people's president. They have a right to speak to me and to touch me if they want. So almost every evening at the end of the workday, he would ride his horse alone to his vacation home, the soldier's home, three miles outside of Washington, D.C. Have you ever seen an American president alone, anytime, anywhere? He was the people's president, so two Secret Service agents followed him around during the day, another during the evening hours, and a fourth keeping watch outside his bedroom where he was supposed to be sleeping but could more commonly be found wandering the dark hallways. The White House has 31 rooms, said Carl Sandburg, but Abraham Lincoln wasn't at home in any one of them. In a drawer of his desk in the White House was a fat folder labeled Assassination. It held 80 explicit death threats. In his first few days in Washington, he received many, many gifts, gift baskets of fruit, most of them from places like South Carolina and Alabama. He couldn't touch them, of course. The first one or two threats made me a little uncomfortable, he said. 
but they have long ceased to give me any apprehension. He always said, if I am killed, I die but once. But to live in constant dread is to die over and over again. Yes? Triumph may be of several kinds. When you do your duty no matter what, when you give your life to break the chains of slavery or of sinfulness, no one hath greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. On Monday evening, a few of us gathered here at church so that we could think together about what happened in our land on Palm Sunday exactly 150 years ago. The Army of Northern Virginia is dwindling away, surrounded by blue coats, outnumbered six to one. Few of Robert E. Lee's men are wearing shoes any longer, and none of them have eaten for days. I suppose the only thing left for me to do is to go see General Grant, says General Lee, but I would rather die a thousand deaths. But General Lee goes to Appomattox Courthouse to plead for mercy. He has nothing to bargain with. He has been a traitor to his country for four years, and his army has been thoroughly thrashed. Across the table from him sets General U.S. Grant. Northern newspapers say the U.S. stands for unconditional surrender. So Robert E. Lee has modest expectations. He is bold enough to ask for one thing, though. He asks General Grant, may we keep our horses? It's April 9. It's planting time. In the Confederate Army, you took your own horse to the war. General Grant readily complies. He also orders up 75,000 rations for these enemies of his that haven't eaten for days. And the Union officers also have a request for the Army of Northern Virginia. General Lee, permission to go behind the Confederate lines. What for, says Robert E. Lee. Many officers tell the general, we attended West Point with one of your officers and we have not spoken for four years. Ulysses S. Grant silences every victory celebration. There will be no gloating, no boasting, no humiliation. These are once again our brothers. The next day in Washington, Americans gather on the lawn of the White House clamoring for a victory speech. They want revenge. They want retribution. They want to start building gallows. But President Lincoln is not interested in gallows or in victory speeches. He simply turns to the army band and says, Would you play Dixie? It's one of my favorite tunes. Triumph may be of several kinds. He arrived in the capital city astride this homely symbol of peace and power. And we call it his triumphal entry, which is a funny way of talking about it, knowing what we know. 
knowing that his triumph will be effulgent but fugitive, here and then gone. But triumph may be of several kinds. He came to Jerusalem knowing that the city would kill him, but he came anyway. And because of that, all of us are free at last. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.